0: Hello, party people, and welcome back to the IBS Freedom Podcast. I am joined, as always, by the most amazing that was a hard amazing oh. co-host on planet Earth, Amy Hollenkamp, RD to the maximum. Hello, Amy.
1: Hello. It's great to be here with you as Likewise. Usual.
0: We didn't record last week. While I was getting my bronze goddess Tan on in California, we skipped recording for a week. So we were sulking a little bit that we didn't get to talk to each other as much as we normally did. So welcome back, back in action. What I want to tell the good people what our topic is, again, acknowledging they've already read the topic, but it seems like we should audibly do like a reveal
1: it feels like a failed surprise every time. I feel like... It, it is. Be- we're going to
0: keep doing it, though. <laughs> we're going to keep... Okay. Do- we have certain brain lesions here on the IBS Freedom Podcast, and we're just going to lean in and make them right. more awkward. So we're running right. with it, man.
1: Pulling the Cheryl Sandberg of leaning into this. is, there, yeah, is So it- care to reveal? Yeah. So we're going to be talking about H. pylori today. It's a fun little microbe to, to, to delve into with a lot of potential ramifications I think health wise um and I think there's a lot of nuance stuff uh that doesn't necessarily get discussed much with h pylori which I'm sure we can delve into I'm excited to i we haven't done an episode on h pylori, and I don't know if I've necessarily totally picked your thoughts around this topic either, so I'm excited to hear sort of your take on on certain things that I've noticed in the h, yeah. h. pylori genre. But yeah, I'm pumped to, to chat about H. pylori today.
0: Yeah, likewise. And I I think we learn from each other each time we do one of these episodes. So I'm excited to hear your perspective on it and your experience. And I do, you know, I, I think I'm going to preface this by saying um, I've had a change of heart around H. pylori Specifically. And by the way, like I'm I feel like this is like my one neuron that's a little bit dyslexic in a way. I can never quite make up my mind if I prefer to say H pi lore I or H. Pylore E. So I'm probably gonna toggle back and forth between alternating how I pronounce it depending on my mood throughout this podcast I'll episode. Leave. So sorry in advance if I drive you crazy or the listeners crazy, but I just I can't make up my mind. But yeah, I've changed my mind on this in a way in probably the last year or so. I i know we've talked a little bit about the GI MAP stool test before. Right. And my feeling for quite a while was that the GI MAP stool test was over-diagnosing H. pylori. Mm-hmm. But now, since I did more of a deep dive in the summer last year, when I was developing Banish the Burn, I realized, oh, no, maybe the conventional tests aren't quite everything they're cracked up to be. And the GI map is catching some of the people who have H. pylori, but maybe it's not overgrown to the degree that it's caught on conventional testing. So now I do tend to treat it, even if it's under under the threshold for the, that lab reference range on the GI map. I might not treat it really aggressively. I might just use like one or two things on it. Uh, but if somebody is, especially if somebody's symptomatic of like, you know, gastritis, GERD, reflux, burning, indigestion, like any any of those symptoms that we could pinpoint on H. pylori, if they have some of those symptoms and the GI map is coming back positive, but it's below that threshold, I have changed my tune in the last year or so and decided no, that might actually be worth treating. Again, maybe not with antibiotics, it might just be like one or two herbal compounds. Uh, But I am getting more in the habit of treating that when I see that on the GI map. I don't know if you feel the same way about that.
1: Yeah, I know we've had this discussion before. I think it was a a bit of a trickier area because, you know, I I think that on the GI map, I I would hear, you know, oh, definitely treat it, even if it's showing up at all. Or, you know, I think there was a level of aggression towards the H. pylori that was showing up on, on the the GI map. And again, like yeah. it, it, it almost still takes tailoring the approach to the yeah. person as well, which I think you mentioned when you were describing everything, like depending on what the person is, is exhibiting H pylori, if it's slightly kind of under the threshold, but they're having symptoms of upper GI issues, it could be more problematic. Yeah. It might make sense to treat it or to do something about it. Now again, the conventional thing of like the four, the the quadruple antibiotic therapy might not be yeah. wise in a situation where it your H. pylori is a little bit overgrown. So again, it, I think it's one of those scenarios where it's kind of it, it can be a little bit interesting in terms of how how to go about actually like lowering those yeah. levels. Like I almost think it's more of like depending on the type of h pylori too like i know that there's virulence factors in the gi map which is interesting so like if you have a a strain of h pylori that tends to be really ulcered, like ulcer producing mm-hmm. um compared to like maybe another strain or yeah. uh yeah like another strain of h pylori that's that's not as virulent then again it might change how you would go about managing it too yeah but yeah i I think you're right there's probably like a the degree or spectrum of h pylori overgrowth varies in a lot of ways and what what's conventionally picked up is probably going to be the far end of the spectrum where yeah. they might have a lot of h pylori going on whereas maybe what the gi map's picking up there's some dysbiosis or imbalance where there's kind of higher levels of H. pylori, but maybe it's not necessarily enough to be picked
0: up by the conventional yeah. testing. Yeah, yeah, and I think that you can almost think of it like a hierarchy of right. Before we get into the possible treatments for it, you can kind of gauge like how severe your H. pylori is, right. and then judging like how you would treat it. So the lowest of the low would be if all the testing has come back negative, the GI map has come back negative, but you just think you have it, right? So like that, I would not treat that super aggressively. You could maybe throw Suburbarine at it or throw like one thing and see if it shifts anything. But if all of your testing has come back negative, including the functional testing, and you just think that you have it, you might just be looking for the wrong boogeyman. And I would encourage you to look at other boogeymen. Then... Like, up a couple of rungs from that would be the person who had a low level of H. pylori detected on something like a GI map. It's not overgrown. It's not displaying a lot of virulence factors, but it's there. And those are the people where it's like, okay, maybe it's it's an overgrowth, but it's not like a hella overgrowth. Right. It's not It's not crowding out everything else in your stomach to the point that you need to nuke it, but it's probably worth treating... You know, if somebody came back like that with a low level of H. pylori, but it's not super virulent, and they're asymptomatic, I would consider leaving it alone, personally. If the same scenario comes back, GI map is positive, it's not above the threshold, but it's not virulent, but they have symptoms. Then I would think more in the lines of like herbals and probiotics and doing the natural strategies. And then kind of like the highest rung would be people who get the conventional tests like the H. pylori breath test or the stool antigen from LabCorp or Quest, or they have an endoscopy and it's diagnosed on an endoscopy. Like if those things are positive, then, you know, maybe you consider the antibiotic therapy or maybe you just treat it really aggressively with the natural compounds. But again, it's like, you know, conventional testing is positive. That's a heck of an overgrowth. You probably want to nuke it. and and be really thorough with that approach and that treatment coming back on the GI map but it's not necessarily overgrown I don't know try some herbals see if it shifts anything maybe don't put all your eggs in that one basket and then yeah if all your testing is negative and you're just convinced you have it then you might just want to look at a different boogeyman
1: yeah yeah because again like there's definitely been some people that You know, we're sort of in between, like, whether it's, like, uh, is it something that's going to help? Because you have, maybe even, again, like, they have pretty close to, like, where the threshold is on the GI map. And we treat it and it doesn't help their symptoms much either. Again, like, it's not really making a dent. I still think it's a good thing to pay attention to how you're responding to the treatment and adjusting versus just kind of blindly, you know strategizing based on what the test says still or again what you're saying focusing on one boogeyman versus trying to be like okay if this didn't really make a dent what could be going on or what other factors do we need to address
0: Yeah, well and you touched on something too which is you could have something that looks abnormal on test results and it could be completely unrelated to the symptoms that you're trying to work on Right. so you could have constipation And you could have high methane on paper, like on a SIBO test, but the constipation could be caused by something else other than the methane. So there are plenty of people who have constipation who have normal methane levels. And there are people with methane-dominant SIBO who have diarrhea. And there are people who have no methane production. They have hydrogen production on a SIBO breath test, and they still have constipation. So it's like, we want to... We want to have these conversations and clinically like doctors want to have these conversations with patients where they get to be the hero and they get to show you like, Oh, this is the bad guy. It was this all along. And I get the value of doing that and and showing you like, you're not crazy. It's right here. This is the reason for your constipation. But really every time we're running a test and we're saying, I think this is causing this for you. We're speculating. We don't know for sure until we treat the thing. And if the symptom gets better, then that's building the hypothesis. But similarly, if you think, oh, I have H. pylori, that's why I have X, Y, and Z, and then you treat it and it doesn't change your symptoms, every time you try a treatment for that thing and it doesn't shift the symptoms for you, you are building the null hypothesis you are building the case that proves that that thing that you're treating is actually unrelated to the symptom that you're trying to target. And you need to be aware of that and you need to listen to that instead of just committing harder and doubling down on more and more aggressive strategies to treat the same thing, because they could actually be unrelated. So that kind of a tangent, but I felt like it was worthwhile because, yeah, like I've seen people who are convinced that they have SIBO and they treat the SIBO until the cows come home and it doesn't do anything. Right. But when we shift gears a little bit, that makes a change. Or like H. pylori, they, they're hammering the snot out of H. pylori. And it's when we finally just put that on the back burner and say, maybe we'll come back to this later. Let's focus on something else. Like sometimes that makes the biggest difference.
1: Right, right. And again, like I think the SIBO analogy is really good because like sometimes people – actually need to repair and rebuild their microbiome in yeah. order to find like total relief and progress like some people are yeah. going to be prebiotic responders which is the opposite of ki- nuking it with a whole bunch of herbals or pharmaceutical yeah. antibiotics so i think it's it's always important to know that there's going to be nuances within the individual within the individual and it's always important to pay attention to to how you're responding to things and not just like this is the only protocol and we have to push forward regardless of how you're doing there has to be some ability to assess where someone's at yeah and and make adjustments humility
0: like i do think that ego gets involved quite a lot where you know either on the part of the patient or the provider where like both of them just want to keep doubling down on that path because they really don't want to acknowledge that they've been on the wrong path but yeah, I, I, I think it's worthwhile, especially with H. pylori, because honestly, and this is this is still something I mentally chew on all the time. Right. The question of, is all H. pylori bad? Right. I I'm still in the camp of no, which is why if it comes back low or within the normal range on the GI map and you're asymptomatic for H. pylori-related symptoms, I usually don't want to treat that. But if you're symptomatic, then I think you could pay attention. But as an example, um, I pulled up just a couple more like references. um, And there's about a 35% prevalence of H. pylori infection in the United States, which sounds like a lot. So if you gather a group of your friends, if you gather nine friends together, probably three of you have H. pylori, which is bizarre to think about. But the prevalence worldwide is about 50%. And the prevalence in some countries is much higher. Like I just wrote down from a study uh, that I noted in Banish the Burn, the prevalence of H. pylori infection in Nigeria is 88%. Right. That is, so you gather nine of your friends, like eight of you, 8.5 of you have, I guess I should have just rounded it. You gather 10 of your friends Out of the 10 of you, nine of you have H. pylori. Like that's pretty profound. And when I see stuff like that, it makes me wonder, does that mean that the life that we live or like the environment in Nigeria, for example, is that conducive to H. pylori overgrowth? Like there's something wrong, there's something bad in that environment that creates that problem and it's something that needs to be addressed? Or is it that, We could live in symbiosis with H. pylori sometimes. And for some people, that's more difficult if they have other confounding variables. But when I see numbers like that, where it's like a a pretty good majority of the population tests positive for it, and presumably not all of them are symptomatic, it does make you wonder if it's really abnormal, the presence of this microbe. Um, And I know it's very high in China as well, but to be my own devil's advocate, and slowly take you down this rabbit hole of thought. I know there's a lot of research on H. pylori that comes out of China because they have a high incidence of gastric cancer. Right. So is the H. pylori asymptomatic until it causes gastric cancer? Right. So I don't know. I don't know if like asymptomatic H. pylori is okay, and it's not going to do anything bad, or if asymptomatic H. pylori means that maybe someday you're going to get cancer, or right, right. what? Or like, there's multiple
1: it... factors, like you were saying before. Well, and I, it's interesting you bring this up, because I know, I don't know if you read the book, it's called Missing Microbes. Have you heard of that no. before? Sounds good. It's by I'm... a, it's by a, I believe he's a gas. yeah, he's a gastroenterologist. Can and I he was the director, really? he was the director of the Human Microbiome Project. His name's ah. Dr. Dr. Martin Blazer. Hmm. But he wrote. The book's called Missing Microbes. Sorry, I'm, I'm reading it from a past blog I wrote. It's called Missing Microbes, How the Overuse of Antibiotics is Fueling Our Modern Plagues. But he was talking about in that book how there's like a popular saying in the gastroenterology world, which is like the only good H. pylori is a de- dead H. pylori is sort of the, the theme. But he was arguing in that book that H. pylori has been a part of the stomach ecosystem forever and his sort of claim is that there's evidence that supports that H. pylori may have some benefits from protecting us from things like GERD and even asthma. Yeah. And again, he argues that there are a lot of strains and not all of them are going to be yep. harmful. And he, he kind of prefaces it as being similar to an E. e. coli, like E. coli mm-hmm. is a uh, something that's naturally in our gut, but there's certain strains yeah. that are going to be really harmful. So again, it he kind of has an interesting take on it. I forget all again the research he cites in that book, but he said that there is some evidence that there could be some protective effects from H. pylori as well. So again, it, it creates more nuance to the whole discussion when you have kind of different researchers and th- and again even just the prevalence rate. It's like. That's not going to be a problem in, in all 88%, all 88% of, yeah. Ni- you said Nigeria, was yeah. that
0: what you said? Yeah, Nigeria. Like, I
1: I can't imagine that 88% of those people are exhibiting, like, H. pylori-esque
0: uh, symptoms. There could certainly yeah. be a more than pers- 88% of the population is going to get gastric cancer from the H. pylori. Right. Like, that can't be. That can't, that would be absolutely absurd, and we would for sure know about it by now.
1: Right. So again, yeah, I yeah. I think there's some kind of interesting nuance in, in different uh, opinions on the H. Pylori yeah. side of the scenarios, and I think again it's because it's like everything else. There's so much gray area yeah. with it, and you have to sort of factor in different things when you're considering what to do. But
0: well, I always and, th- and I'll I'll throw this out as a framework. Sorry, I think I just cut you off partway through a sentence, but. Probably the approach of, like, getting better at identifying infections and identifying right. microbes. Like, that's cool. And my my sciency brain loves that kind of stuff. But I don't know if that's going to be the ultimate path to get you to health. Like, identifying the bad guy, identifying the critter, the microbe, and targeting it, and yada yada. Versus kind of zooming way out and saying like with H. pylori, there are probably other variables that make some people with H. pylori more susceptible to developing symptoms or cancer. For example, the rate of, I, I forget what it is, but the rate of how many people in China smoke, they have a very high rate of smoking. Right. Well, we've known forever that smoking is linked with various types of cancer, including gastric cancer. So like that could be the magic duo, H. pylori plus Plus smoking equals cancer later in life. And I think that there's been some research in that arena. I don't know off the top of my head, but, you know, it's like, what, what is the diet doing? What is like the stress level looking like? Pollution, like pollution. I mean, it's, it's been a while, but I remember when I was in undergrad, my roommate studied abroad in China for, I forget, I forget it was, it was over the summer, I think. So it was about four months I forget where she was exactly. I want to say she was in Shanghai, but I can't swear to that. And she told me, and this was probably like 2005, 2006, somewhere in there, because I think it was like midway through college. And when she came back to the States, she was delighted to see the sun because she said the pollution in the cities was so bad She didn't see the sun the entire time she was there. And she said maybe like a week into her her time there, she looked up and she was like, what is that? And it was so like hazy looking. She couldn't quite make out what was in the sky. And then I think somebody pointed out her and they were like, that's the sun, dude. And she was like, what? Like, that's not what it looks like at all. So even things like like the amount of pollution that people are breathing in, even if they're not smoking. They're still breathing right. crap in that's damaging their lungs and causing inflammation and depleting glutathione. Like it's, there's so much to this. So rather than zooming in on each microbe, it I think it is better 90% of the time to zoom out and say, how can we build you the healthiest, most resilient body so that you could withstand stressors and infectious agents of all types? Right. And and I've been saying this about Epstein Barr virus, EBV, for years. Right. You if you're alive, you're going to be exposed to EBV. The presence of the virus does not matter because we all get exposed to it. We all become carriers of EBV by the time we're in like high school or maybe college. Right. The thing is, is your body healthy and strong and resilient enough to cope with that and keep the kibosh on it so that it doesn't become an active infection? But rather than, you know, there's been books and articles about this herb for EBV and that herb for EBV and St. John's Word for EBV. And it's like, why don't we step back and just work on building up a healthier body so that you have resiliency against all of the microbes and all of the inflammatory stimuli in your life. And then you almost don't need to care about the individual infectious agents. And I think the same is true for H. pylori.
1: Such a great point because I almost think it it's true for SIBO as well. It's like, yeah. w- how do you even get H. pylori to begin with? Like, it, or how it's overgrowing in a sense that's not conducive to your body. Like, there has to be breakdowns that drive that yeah. to create an, an environment that's going to be hospitable to an overabundance of something like H. pylori. So, yeah. Again, sometimes I I agree. We get so locked into these ideas of this is a it's just H. pylori or it's just DBV and yes. it's so much more than that. It's about digging deeper as in understanding what breakdowns led your body to be less resilient to an H. pylori infection or what breakdowns are making you less resilient to, to SIBO like dealing with SIBO. Yeah. And I think you could go down the line with various kind of, especially microbial issues in general. Like I, I just think Sometimes we get so locked in on the microbiome or pathogens or that sort of thing. And yeah. it's always good, like what you're saying, to zoom out and say, you know, how can I actually just build resilience against these things? I, I, I think, honestly, if you're ever in doubt on your gut stuff, trying to ask your, asking yourself that question and focusing on strategies, like even if you don't necessarily know, maybe there's multiple things going on and you don't know what like the biggest thing is. But it's like even if you're just focusing on resilience, I think for a lot of people that can get them a lot of the way to where they wanna be. Maybe not yeah. totally there, but it, it can really, really transform the process yeah. and and move the needle in a lot of different ways. Yeah.
0: Well, and we we talked about this a bit with the last episode, right? Like people wanting the answers and the boogeyman and and kind of like pointing the finger and pointing blame because a lot of times When we develop an inflammatory disease or a chronic disease, a lot of times there's blame put on us, either ourselves, us blaming ourselves, or the provider who tells us, it's all in your head, you did this to yourself, you know, why don't you lose weight, etc., etc. So I think that there's naturally a lot of fingers pointing at us in the healing process. So then people by and large, become very desperate to point the finger elsewhere. And it's not to say that there's never a boogeyman and that 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 is not a thing that can happen. But yeah, I I agree. I think that wedded doubt building resilience and just trying to build a healthy body. I mean, honestly, like that's kind of what I did with my course FODMAP Freedom. Like it's a lot of that course would be beneficial for people without SIBO. But I, I built it around SIBO. But it's like, you know, we talk about like sleep and stress management and like improving vagal tone and improving the microbiome and and improving nutrition. And it's like that's not going to hurt anybody to do that. But I, I kind of, I kind of trick people into taking this course about building a healthy body and a strong, <laughs> resilient body. And I just right. trick them by saying it's a sibo course, and like it is, but it's also not. And that's really funny for me to kick back and watch. And I joke all the time with students. I'm like, I tricked you into being here, right? Yeah. right. Just so that I could have some of these conversations with you and teach you the stuff that you actually need to know. And right. it's all of the it's the the less sexy stuff that right. ends up being really impactful a lot of the time. But right. you know, it's, it's like- you have to have like the the la- the label of oh, this is a SIBO class or the framework of SIBO mm-hmm. for people to really care about some of these lessons. In my experience, right
1: it's so funny you say that because my course is the same way like i just feel like it's all about foundational pieces and it's funny because you know my course is labeled as a SIBO course but it's like some people are like oh is this still would this still be valuable valuable for like candida or ibs in general and i'm like yeah Yeah. like it's it's you know speaking to a SIBO crowd so everything's sort of put in the reference referencing SIBO but it is it is interesting because i think you're right like the first the majority of the program's all about foundational pieces that you just want to make sure you're checking the box on doesn't mean that they have to be perfect but like that you're paying attention to these factors and trying to move the needle forward and creating habits that are going to build that resilience and build positive momentum and change and yeah Again, those are the hard things to do versus just kind of buying a supplement or, you know, attacking the boogeyman or creating a protocol. I think that is a lot easier than actually trying to figure out how you're going to get to bed two hours earlier because you're only getting five hours of sleep. Like, so sometimes, again, the habit change is just so much, sometimes more difficult than doing the protocols.
0: Well, and I think sometimes it's a matter of dopamine, also. Yeah. Or it's like dopamine is the neurotransmitter of like motivation. For those of you who don't know, and it's you know if you if you create a pain point by spending fifty dollars on a supplement, you're probably gonna muster up the dopamine and the motivation to take the supplement because it stung just a little bit when you bought it, and it it. It's going to be like that little reminder of like, oh, I better take that thing versus, you know, if it's if it's a matter of getting to bed on time, to use your example, and giving yourself enough rest. That's like a no dopamine situation. (laughs)
1: Like,
0: there's no there's no pain point kind of prompting you to make that decision. You're probably going to get pulled in a million different directions. Your spouse is going to want to take up your your brain and talk about something your kids going to want to do something. You feel like you have to do more work, you feel like you should be right. doing a million other things. And it's like all of those all of those shoulds get in the way of what you actually need to do. But it's like if you had more more dopamine, more motivation, you could kind of get over the hump and make it happen. But the lifestyle stuff and the habit stuff is so unglamorous and unsexy that people just don't do it or they forget to do it a lot of the time because they don't have like enough motivation to kind of get them there. Right. But I want to get back to H. Pylori because believe it or not, folks, this is an H. Pylori episode. (laughs) Right. But I, I want to thread something in too, which is again, going back to this idea of like individuality One of the things that happens with H. pylori infection, and probably why it is a big deal, is because it's pretty well established that it frigs up your immune system in the Mm. stomach. So your immune cells are trying to fight the infection, and it's ramping up these guys called Th17 cells, which are pretty inflammatory, but they also are helpful when you have an infection. So it's like you're trying to go in with bazookas and kill the H. pylori, but the bazookas are causing some tissue irritation and some damage. So like some of the tissue damage that comes with H. pylori and some of the inflammation is because of the microbe itself. And some of it is because of our immune system trying to attack it. It's very much like COVID, like some of the some of the bad stuff that happens with COVID is because of the actual virus. A lot more of it has to do with our immune system losing its damn mind and creating a lot of inflammation in the process of trying to get rid of COVID. So that is something where, again, like if you build a healthy, resilient, strong body and your immune system on a day to day is pretty chill and pretty happy then maybe your immune system won't lose its mind as much, and it'll be more efficient in its ability to kill off the H. pylori. Versus if you have a lot of stressors and inflammatory stuff in your life to begin with, and then the H. pylori gets the opportunity to overgrow, then your immune system is going to go nonkers, and it's like this thing that snowballs away from you. So going right. back to that idea of resiliency, but again, one of the mechanisms of why that's important is because of what happens with the immune system locally in the stomach and all of that inflammation that it generates not coincidentally i bet one of the natural compounds that has some ability to help with h pylori or the inflammation that it generates is sulforaphane which is a antioxidant found in broccoli seed extract and broccoli sprouts and i bet that that's a piece of it i bet that it's because of that like local inflammation and those th17 cells because that's one of the things that sulforaphane is well known to do it it's anti-inflammatory in very much the same sense as things like turmeric and resveratrol and green tea like they all kind of work on the same immune chemistry um for the most part at least
1: right well and i know i know green tea is helpful for h pylori as well so again maybe the same mechanisms at play i don't even think like grapeseed extract might fall in the same vein. I don't know if it would, but Mm. it could be playing a role in some of the immune system modulating effects. And and I think again, like I don't think we've mentioned it, but maybe everyone knows, but H. Pylori is sort of known, well known for being the ulcer microbe. So again, some of the inflammation it's generating can lead to sort of damage to the tissue, whether it's an ulcer or gastritis, or an irritation in the in the stomach, and I would say too. Um, one other thing that H. pylori can do, just like to help it the environment become more hospitable for it, is that it produces like certain enzymes that can kind of like lower your acid levels mm-hmm. to make it nice and cozy for it uh, to to take hold. The H. pylori doesn't really love a high acid environment either, so. You know, it definitely can disturb digestion in a lot of ways, where it's kind of creating a potentially lower stomach acid scenario for yeah. you. Um, which then, again, we've talked about leads to things like SIBO and dysbiosis downstream. Yeah, and I, I think that's an important point to recognize because if you have, like, from a hierarchy standpoint, if you have something like H. pylori or even gastritis, that's maybe not related to an H. pylori situation. You almost want to address those things first before kind of moving down in, into things like SIBO, just because you're, it's going to be really hard to make progress with SIBO if there's all this dysfunction going on in the stomach um, from a digestive capacity, inflammatory standpoint. If there's just a lot going on there, it's just going to be impossible to to really solve things downstream and and I think sometimes I see that a lot with clients. Um I've actually been seeing a decent amount of clients with with gastritis as of late. Yeah. And sometimes it's not even like really referenced to them or like told to them. Like their doctors are like, "Oh, we had a, you had a little bit of a irritation in your stomach." E-T-W. But they right, but they just blow it off or sometimes they don't mention it and I'm like looking through their endoscopy notes and it's like yeah. The doctor's like, oh, has mild gastritis or something, but they were never told. Yeah. So it it does. It's very interesting to me. Again, that I do, that I have been seeing more more y things, but in that scenario, a lot of people are still so focused on the SIBO because the gastritis has been like sort of like either not paid attention to or like just a flippant thing, like oh, you had a little bit yeah. of something going on, but not a big deal. Yeah. And I think it's important to recognize if you have something like H. Pylori or gastritis or any sort of stomach related thing going on, and maybe you do have SIBO, of the two things, if you're trying to do things from like a, a, from a process standpoint that makes the most sense, hitting on some, doing some of the stomach work is probably going to be the way to go at first. And then working yeah. your way down would be yeah. the
0: next step. Well, I think from the efficacy of the protocol standpoint, you're right. And also, I'll throw out one other reason you're right. Your ability to tolerate stuff that you want to take for SIBO is going to dramatically improve if you work on the gastritis first. So, like, I've seen many, many people with gastritis and SIBO try to take ginger for their motility. And they say, oh, it did help my motility. I was less bloated or I had a good poop, but my stomach burned like crazy. Right. So I can't take it. And it's like, yeah, because of the gastritis. Really? Or uh another one that I've seen, like any sort of antimicrobial that's made of an oil, like oil of oregano, or there's a product, um, the in AR has like oils in it. And there's one from orthomolecular called intestinal. And I think it's like thyme oregano and one other, maybe clove oil, all put together. But All of those, like, basically concentrated essential oils that are put in a gel capsule, like, it'll be put in with something else, like coconut oil or olive oil or something. Right. But you're still getting a really concentrated aromatic oil, and those irritate the heck out of gastritis a lot of times. And even something like, I've seen people with, with gastritis who can't tolerate magnesium citrate... Right. Or vitamin C supplements, because the citrate or the acetic acid, like the those compounds are irritating to the stomach. So they can't even take magnesium citrate to poop, let right. alone do anything else for their SIBO. So,
1: right, um, such a good yeah, point. I'm, I, glad, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, because it's like, there's so many people, and it can be almost indicative too, even if they haven't been diagnosed with gastritis. If they take like HCL or something or, you know, oh, I get horrible burning with HCL. I mean, that could be a really indicative that there's probably some sort of irritation going on that needs to be addressed first before you can really move forward with other things. So I I think you're dead on there. It's like it's almost hard from a treatment standpoint to address any of the SIBO scenario stuff. Yeah. But yeah,
0: that that's a great point. You, you have I agree a much more limited tool belt, right? If you don't take care of the upper GI stuff first, and honestly, mm-hmm. like, so the first two times that I did FODMAP Freedom, mm-hmm. I didn't have a lot of content around GERD in that course because again, yeah, like in my mind, it's a SIBO course. Right. But that's why I that's why I made Banish the Burn last year, and I give that as an adjunct to FODMAP Freedom as one of the bonuses, and that way it's like. It's not part of the core curriculum. So if you just have SIBO or you just have IBS, you don't have to do that mini course on the GERD and gastritis. But for the people who do, I encourage them to go through Banish the Burn and work on that first and then circle back to the main curriculum of FODMAP freedom. Because again, it's like you're going to have a very limited tool belt and you're going to be dealing with a lot of stuff that's going to cause downstream effects and keep you stuck in the SIBO unless you take care of the stomach stuff. First, so right. it's I I had to add that into the program in a way because I was like, well, there are some people who are really hitting significant speed bumps because of their ability to tolerate the stuff that I'm recommending at von Map Freedom.
1: Right. Yeah. Totally. Yep. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Being nimble and and thinking on our feet—that's what <laughs> we have to do clinically.
1: Yeah. All day, every
0: day is like, okay, that didn't work. All right. What can we do to improve that experience and make that work better?
1: Right. Right, exactly. But yeah, yeah. I, again, I've definitely like seen people that are like, oh, I definitely have SIBO, and then they try different things, and it's like, no, you probably have gastritis, just with how you're responding to some of these things, we have to address that yeah. first. And I think sometimes it's like a little bit of a bummer to them, because, again, the SIBO was the problem, but you're like, no, we definitely need to do the gastritis stuff to make everything More effective, but also tolerable from a SIBO standpoint. If you're doing anything SIBO-wise, it could be tricky without having the stomach integrity in place.
0: Uh, I think so, certainly. But why don't we get into probably the entire reason everybody tuned in. They're just like, ah, we're going to fast forward all this crap. But why don't we talk about some, like, antimicrobial agents and some tools that we might use if we have somebody with H. pylori acknowledging neither of us are prescribers. So if you want to do like triple therapy or quadruple therapy, do not come to us, because that's not something we do. But just as the quick kind of rundown for that, so that everybody knows, when we talk about triple therapy, that is two antibiotics and a PPI, which is so ironic, right? Like H. pylori suppresses stomach acid, and then we're going to suppress your stomach acid further with a a PPI. And that's super gonna frig up your small bowel and lead to SIBO if All you're right. on it for a prolonged period of time. So that just that that astonishes me. Uh, but yeah, triple therapy is two antibiotics and a PPI. Quadruple therapy is two antibiotics, a PPI and bismuth. And that does seem to be a bit more effective to a point where I would say just t- like you could get bismuth as a supplement. And you could add that into your natural protocol. But it seems like that compound, A, it can kind of settle the tummy a little bit, which is exactly why Peptobismol exists. Uh, but Peptobismol has like the funky, scary pink dye in it. And I think it's, it's either aspirin or Tylenol. Which one of those is acetaminophen? Because I'm pretty sure it I think has, it has acetaminophen tylenol. in it. Yeah, I think it has like Tylenol in it. Um, so I don't recommend that. But there are supplement. Brands with bismuth, like the one that I usually use is called Biofilm Phase Two Advanced. I think the company is Priority One Supplements, and it's just it's bismuth and it's a bit of alpha lipoic acid because that helps in the biofilm disrupting properties, apparently. So I'll use that moderately frequently. There's a blend from Apex Energetics called Oh God, what's it called? HPLR is the one that I'm thinking of. I think and HPLR is pretty good. I know it's got berberine, and I forget what else it's got in there. And berberine is one compound that's been shown to inhibit H. pylori. So those are probably two of the ones that I use the most. There's also a product from Orthomolecular called pyloracil, and that has some zinc in it, and I think bismuth and berberine, if I remember correctly. So that's a nice little blend too.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah I've, but- I've used pyloracil before, Sometimes I'll use Gastromend. There's a couple different things that I've done for H. pylori. I feel like sometimes it it depends on the person, but yeah. I also think again, I I know we're probably going to get into this too, but I think there's some probiotic agents that could be helpful as well. Yeah, um, I know BioGaia has the gastrus yep. yep, That I that I really like um, for H. pylori. I mean, it's helpful for Sibo too. So, like, if someone has. A H. pylori Sibo double whammy, mm-hmm. especially if it's more methane dominant too. I I think yeah, it, it could be really beneficial in those situations. Again, I think anything that can kind of coat the the stomach lining, like gastromen has yeah. things like DGL in, yeah. in it, zinc carnosine, like you were saying, slippery yeah. elm, some of those things that that we've talked about before. I think. Are going to be valuable probably again at lowering the inflammatory response, also building yeah. up gastric mucosa, so those sorts of things I think can be be very beneficial as well when whenever you're dealing with a an h pylori scenario sometimes too like if someone again wants to try some gentle things too, like doing things like green tea. If it's tolerated, if you can tolerate caffeine, broccoli sprouts, like actually working in some of these food items can also be something you try. Yeah, broccoli sprouts are
0: pretty easy to grow and you can get a bag of the seeds for pretty cheap. I think it's like 20 bucks for a pound of the sprouts and then you just get some sort of apparatus where you can lay the seeds out and have a sprouting operation going. And they're pretty easy and you could put them on salads or blend them up and put them in smoothies.
1: Right. Um, well, and I think like uh similar to that, like probably cabbage. I know I think it's a cabbage juice where hmm. they call it like vitamin U yeah. or something. Yeah. Is that what it's called? Or vitamin yeah. something?
0: Yeah. I don't I think it's a true vitamin, they but they
1: that? I don't know either. I don't know either, but I know that that's kind of been shown to help inhibit H pylori a bit as I, well.
0: I don't know if it's. I don't know if it's specifically useful for H pylori. But Mm -hmm. there's a product from Biotics Research called, oh, why can't I think of it? It's
1: like Gastrozyme or something?
0: Yeah, I think it is Gastrozyme I'm thinking of. And it's got some of that like vitamin U stuff in it. But Biotics tends to sneak stuff like that into their products quite a lot. But Gastrozyme can help with the symptoms of GERD and gastritis. I remember um, I talked about my mom's geyser bleeding ulcer, right? Gosh, And she was on. PPIs for a while because we didn't want her to bleed out and have another ulcer so she was on PPIs for a couple of months her doctors were just like yeah you're going to be on this forever and i was like mm, no we're right. going to work on that and one of the tools that i used to help get her off of the PPIs was gastrozyme because she was running into that that issue where like she would lower the dose and she would get some reflux and so i had her taking gastrozyme for a while there to kind of like ease some of the symptoms and and decrease the inflammation. I don't remember if there's anything in there that could be specifically helpful for H. pylori, but it wouldn't surprise me. And I, like I said, I'm pretty sure they have that vitamin U cabbage juice kind of stuff in there.
1: Yeah. yeah, I I think that
0: anti-inflammatories generally speaking should help again, because they're at least mitigating some of the inflammation and Generally, like if you think of inflammation, if you got like a laceration on your leg, right? The tissue would become red and swollen and puffy and irritated and it, it would puff up and it would probably get pussy. Like pus is basically dead white blood cells that are fighting off the infectious right. agent. And if you think about like irritated tissue, but on the inside, it would stand to reason that the tissue would be red and puffy and be like covered in white blood cells, trying to fight the infection and like the puffiness and the swelling, that part of it could make it hard for your immune system to work properly. Like it's almost too much of a good thing. So if you can help just mitigate some of the inflammation and take out some of the puffiness of the tissues, I think that that could be helpful for any sort of infection. So, right. like, if it's topical, maybe we would use something as an astringent, and we would try to like tighten up the tissues and release some of that swelling and get it get it to right. be a bit better. But I think you know, in green tea, tea has some astringent properties. Maybe that's a piece of why it works, right? Like, maybe it's Great. the astringency and the antioxidants combined, and we're getting we're getting some effect there. The sulforaphane I mentioned. Even there's some polyphenols that inhibit H. pylori to some degree. Or even there was one study that showed that, and I think it was a little older, but there was a study that showed that five grams of vitamin C per day led to about a 30% eradication rate for H. pylori. Yeah. I mean, no harm, no foul there. Like, sign me up before I, I take two doses of antibiotics and a PPI for a month or whatever it is, like, sign my ass up for the high-dose vitamin C. Absolutely.
1: Right. Well, again, I, I think you can layer in, like, different strategies, too. Like, again, maybe you like green tea and you tolerate it, so just drink a little bit more green tea. Maybe you can work in some sprouts in your salad. Um, again, have things like blueberries or, like, very poly- yeah. other very polyphenol-rich foods that could potentially help yeah. with H. pylori. <laughs> <Chocolate>. Um <clears throat> Yeah. And again, like even, coffee, you know, yeah. if if you tolerate things like fermented foods, you could add some of those into mm-hmm. which could be helpful as well. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of like ways that you could support an H. pylori approach food-wise too. It might not yeah. be enough totally to, to eradicate the problem on its own, but, yeah. you know, I, I think that there's a lot of different layers that you could add into an H. pylori protocol that's outside of
0: the supplemental kind of stuff too. Yeah. One other thing that I... similarly for SIBO, right? Like, support the body with nutrition to the degree that you're able. And I'll throw out there, too, you touched on this, but when you're looking, you know, if you Google herbs for H. pylori or antimicrobials for H. pylori, or if you're listening to this podcast and you're like, okay, they rattled off 10 different supplements, which one do I get? A, don't be the person who buys all of them. (sighs) Just don't. (laughs) Right. Um, But B... Like, trying to look for two-fers or three-fers, wherever you can. So, like, if you have H. pylori and also methane SIBO, BioGaia just became really appealing to you. Right, right. Uh, Versus, like, if you have H. pylori and you have high blood sugar or diabetes, then maybe the berberine is really, really appealing to you, right? Because there's some research that berberine can help with blood sugar regulation when it's high. So you can kind of, like pick and choose these strategies a little bit based off of other kind of stuff that you're struggling with. If you know that you have H. pylori and you also have arthritis and you need some anti-inflammatory support, throw in some turmeric and some, you know, sulforaphane and get some of those antioxidants going in addition to your antimicrobials. So you can kind of like, to give you guys a peek into our brains, like what we kind of go through clinically when we're thinking of how to build a protocol for the person That's the sort of stuff that I do. And I know, like, on my YouTube channel, I get requests all the time. Like, oh, just do a a SIBO protocol A to Z video. And it's like, I can't. I I would love to, but I can't. It's not that simple. Because, again, like, the antimicrobial that we use is going to be different, the supportive agents and the probiotics, the things that we're going to use, I'm trying to tailor it to the individual. If you see a functional medicine specialist who has the same damn SIBO protocol for every SIBO patient, run. Because that's going to only work, you know, 20% of the time, and then everybody else is going to be shit out of luck. So that's exactly what we're trying to get away from is the protocol bullshit. And yet I get comments practically every week on my YouTube channel begging me for a protocol. and I'm like, I can't because right. i don't know you anyway moment moment of like existential crisis of a youtuber that i had to share but um you talk for a minute because now i've exhausted myself
1: oh no oh uh, i'm trying to help well, you guys <laughs> i
0: have but, like you make it hard well
1: again like i think again that's where the nuance comes in because like not everyone can tolerate green tea so from a caffeine standpoint or you know uh, for other reasons so it's like you know that might not yeah. be an option for you so th- there has to be some nuancey stuff to all this stuff and i think like what you're saying the more you can consolidate things based on other issues that might be going on the better i will say too like one other one other thing i've found to be helpful in certain cases and this could be because of an immune benefit from this particular supplement compound but also potentially from a binding like there some people or there's some evidence that it can bind to like h pylori would be like colostrum or sbi some of those type supplements could potentially Mm. be helpful and there could be dual reasons why like again some of the stuff we don't necessarily know but again that could be something to to think a little bit about too like immunoglobulin formulations that could could be helpful
0: yeah That's a good point because, yeah, I think from like a binding perspective, immune enhancement, I know also the supplement lactoferrin has Mm. decent research with H. pylori and also some other critters, like I think Klebsiella and like some of those like, you know, proteobacteria Mm. phylum guys, which H. pylori is in proteobacteria, FYI. So like it belongs to the same big group that E. coli klebsiella pseudomonas like all of the nasty nasties belong in the same kind of clan just so you know um but I know lactoferrin which is also derived from dairy has some ability to disrupt the H. pylori biofilm and enhance eradication and I've used that in H. pylori protocols many times um Yeah, and it it makes you wonder if there would be some synergy using lactoferrin Mm -hmm. and colostrum together, or I don't know if, like, colostrum supplements have a little bit of lactoferrin in them, and maybe that's a
1: piece of it. They actually do. Um, Okay. I I know, I'd have to check my bag. Actually, um, personally, and everyone's different, again, like, I want to preface before I go into this, but I've really liked colostrum. Um, for a variety of different reasons. I think it generally helps my energy. Probably hmm. more so than any other supplement I've tried. And again, I'm prefacing oh. that, like, this could be a singular thing for- Everybody's going to buy it now, Amy. You I have know, everyone's going to buy colostrum. Amazon
0: is going to be flooded um, with colostrum inquiries now because of Amy Hollingamp.
1: Right. I'm just trying to- I'm trying to prepare Amazon
0: because I'm so nice. Um, uh, but Can I interrupt, uh, though? Yeah. I, do, I feel like I interrupt you all day on these podcasts. No, so right. I think I mentioned this in the hydrogen sulfide episode. Did I tell you about the time the probiotic advisor, Jason Haverleck, mentioned in a blog post that uh, cottonopsis root could inhibit hydrogen sulfide? And I couldn't find it anywhere on the internet oh for like gosh. two years right. after that. Like all of my normal sources were gone and I was so mad because I had just gotten to know that herb from like an immune modulating perspective and like kind of more what it's traditionally used for Mm -hmm. is like an immune aid or immune modulator. And I think it helps with like replenishing qi or something in Chinese medicine. But I had just gotten to know that herb and I was starting to use it a fair amount. And then he mentioned that it might inhibit hydrogen sulfide and everybody bought it. (laughs) And I was so mad. I was like, darn it, Dr. Howell, like, you have to be careful what you say. So anyway, I'm just waiting for the day when we have, like, a million subscribers on YouTube and are saying, hey, this thing is great. And then, like, everybody buys it. <laughs> right? And we, we frig up the market on Amazon okay. or whatever. I'm just waiting for that day. So mark my word, oh it my will God. come. But well, continue, and, uh, continue. Yeah, now that I interrupted yeah,
1: like, you. I, I've tended to, to like, because there's s b i serum bovine, and bobulins, which i are yeah. somewhat similar to to colostrum too, which I do like, but personally, I found that I tend to like colostrum a little bit better and it's cheaper um mm. but you can you can like one thing i I will mention if it's something you were interested in I know the the brand I like they have like a free sample bag
0: oh okay
1: that you could order from um the one that i typically use is sovereign laboratories colostrum LD. i don't know if you've heard of that one hmm. but i'll pull um, up a tab right now yeah i usually take two scoops at bedtime um or two two teaspoons i should say before bed um but yeah. i I've, I've found again like generally energy wise i feel better taking it um i've noticed a significant hmm. energy boost from taking it versus not taking it um but yeah, I, my, one of my clients actually mentioned they have a free thing where, like, if you mm. ask them for a sample, you have to pay like five bucks for shipping or something. But that's reasonable. It's, right. Well, it's a it's and, a bag. It has like ten servings in it, so it's a decent size huh. sample too.
0: Well, and I might do that actually because I um, I've been debating. I'm like, I wonder if I could tolerate just little bits of dairy here or there. Mm. Um, with the success, the wild success of my reintroduction of Sesame, um, I've kind of wondered a little bit about bits of dairy and I noticed on and off for the last couple months, there were a couple times where I just, I wasn't super duper careful. And then like, I remember in the summer last year, we got, I think it's the Pamela's brand gluten-free graham crackers. And we were doing s'mores at my parents' house. My mom had gotten them and my mom has a brain lesion. (laughs) But she's really good about checking for gluten in things, but she right. is not super diligent about dairy for some right. reason. She sees a gluten-free label and she's like, cool. Right. And she'll and she'll buy like six of everything. So this was one of those, like my mom had bought these Pamela's gluten-free graham crackers, and we were doing s'mores, and I had one. I was like, wow, this is really good. And uh And I looked at the label after I'd eaten like three of them. I looked at the label and like the first ingredient was butter. I was like, oh. I'm familiar
1: with the brand too. They are really good.
0: Yeah. And I was like, "Mm." and I just kind of like, it was way too late even because I think I didn't look at the label for a while later when we were packing stuff up and putting it away. And it was like way too late to take a digestive enzyme and hope for anything from that. Right. And, you know, it's like that feeling of, waiting for the other shoe to drop.
1: Like, okay,
0: when is my body going to realize what just happened? Because my brain just found out. And I was okay. And that was my first little peak of curiosity where I was like, hmm, maybe I don't need to be as anal about the dairy. Like, I'm probably, I don't know. I I don't know if I'm even going to say I'm not going to eat it, like, in in mass quantities. Uh, But I've had a couple of other similar experiences where, like, it was, like, milk or something was an ingredient right. in something, and I did okay. Um, so, yeah, I'm a little bit curious if colostrum would be something I would tolerate and kind of experiment with that. So I, I will tell you in a few weeks whenever I get around to getting that sample pack. And if it gives me crazy diarrhea or bloating, I will let you know that, too.
1: I'm well, blo- that that would be good to know. I, I I'm waiting by the phone to hear your your response but i'm waiting for that
0: weird marco polo
1: (laughs) right exactly i i would say though generally i've seen it be pretty well tolerated even for people that don't necessarily tolerate tons of dairy Um, okay because it's pretty it's really low in lactose i mean again it's it's not really going to be super high in things that i find that people are going to be super reactive to so Mm. I've generally found unless someone's like very dairy sensitive or something like that, that it's decently well tolerated. It might be a good thing to experiment with. And it comes in a powder. So you can just like titrate up or down depending on yeah. how you're experimenting. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I'll have to try that out. Yeah. I'm intrigued. Wow. I'm intrigued but, to hear, uh,
0: to hear well, about it from you. So let me think about H. Pylori. Let me chew on this. Uh ah, I know two things that we have not discussed relative to H. pylori. You thought we were done.
1: No, but now I you think get I know dance.
0: one. Yeah? Is what is, is the
1: one, like, how you get H. pylori? Like, how, like, transfer?
0: I think maybe we're on to the same idea here. Um, my understanding is that you get it initially from, like, in your childhood. Like if you were diagnosed with H. pylori as an adult, chances are you picked that up in childhood when your microbiome Mm -hmm. was still forming, and it seems to be tied with lower socioeconomic status and more rural, um, like settings. Those those two things tend to like increase the the risk or the prevalence of getting H. pylori. But it seems like a lot of it, like that bug, shack's up with you in childhood at some point. Um, Mm -hmm. But tell me what you were going to. Because I think I know what you're going to say, but I'm not positive,
1: right? And again, like I'd be curious to hear your opinion on this because, again, I've I've sort of gone back and forth with with how I approach it. Um, mm-hmm. But again, like I've I've seen some experts and things will say like, oh, you should treat every person in the family uh, that with H. pylori. Mm-hmm. Um, because it could be transferred, like via kissing, or like if someone eats something off yeah. your your plate. And again, like I I think in the past I've sort of like maybe haphazardly been like, oh, just take help, have your husband take this too, or something like that. But again, I'm not I'm not one hundred percent convinced of that. And you could convince me. I, I'm just again I I'm I'm not sure. I, I'm I still like unsure it. how I feel about that as an idea, because I think there's a lot of different factors that could lead someone to, for, for something like that to be transferred or not.
0: Well, again, it's, it's going back to the presence of the microbe in the world isn't the problem. It's like how your body was able to tolerate and modulate it. Now, if your body has been hella inflamed and ticked off, and dysfunctional and you're like still recovering from stuff and you're still working on it, you don't want to get reinfected right away. Right. So I do kind of get it. But yeah, the idea, and this was part of what I was going to say, is that H. pylori can be a part of the oral microbiome. Right. Right. Which is extra creepy. Um, I don't know if you need to treat everybody in the house. And I don't know if I would be worried about like taking a bite off of somebody's plate kind of stuff. If you're like regularly swapping spit with somebody and like kissing them like a spouse, um, I think the compromise that I've done more often is I've said, hey, we don't want you to be re-inoculated. Why don't we have you and your spouse or you and whoever you're smooching with on the regular? Why don't we have both of you do oil pulling with black seed Mm -hmm. oil Mm -hmm. for like a week or two? Because black seed oil is one of the many compounds that has been shown to reduce H. pylori infection or improve eradication.
1: Right. Right.
0: Um, and I think that that's pretty harmless. Like, I think that doing yeah. oil pulling with black seed oil is, is very well tolerated. It's relatively cheap. Like, a bottle of the black seed oil is like 20 bucks. Right. So, you know, it's not too, too cost prohibitive. And just as a strategy of, like, crossing your T's and dotting your I's, I don't think that's a bad idea. Um, I would not treat with oral antimicrobials, probably, and I don't think I would lose a lot of sleep over it. But, again, like, if I know that the patient is married or has, like, a, a steady right. boyfriend or girlfriend and they're swap and spin on the regular with one person, I don't think it hurts to have them do that. I just had a patient's right. boyfriend do that kind of recently-ish. And he was fine with it. He was like, "Okay, whatever." Like, I just want right. you to feel better.
1: Yeah, I think again, like I've been a little bit skeptical about like the full protocols for each member of the family. But I, again, what yeah. you're saying is sort of a reasonable approach. At, I think it's um, so like maybe do a little I bit of something, also- which is sort of like what I've what I've done in the past from an H. pylori standpoint. If there's yeah. like again a spouse or a boyfriend girlfriend scenario, but yeah, yeah it's.
0: It's if, if you're close enough with them and you see them enough that it wouldn't be really awkward to ask them if they would swish some weird herbal potion for two weeks. Right. Like, if your relationship is that, that close, I feel like it's worth having them do that. Similarly, I know the bio Gaia, the gastris, like you could have them take that and right. who do like they might think that it's the greatest thing ever. Um But some of that bacteria stays in the mouth because I know that that probiotic has been shown to reduce dental caries, cavities. Right, right. Which again, which means that it's modulating or changing the oral microbiome, which means that maybe it would be able to exert some of the anti-H pylori effect inside the mouth right. when you chew it up. So I feel like either of those are safe enough and like benign enough that if the person is not carrying it in their mouth, Whatever no big deal, also just asking your significant other uh to floss every day during at least during this treatment, but like they should floss every day anyway, um floss every day and get like a five dollar tongue scraper and scrape the nasties off your tongue and then do the oil pulling like right. i I think that that little protocol and I think a it's harmless. B, it might help prevent a reinoculation on your part. And C, if you can convince your spouse or your significant other to scrape the nasty shit off their tongue and floss every day, and this is your way of tricking them into getting into that habit, cool. You'd be surprised because I ask people on my intake forums, how often do you floss? You would be shocked at the number of adults who do not floss. And I'm like, oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Please, it's so cheap. Please do it.
1: It's funny because like the act of flossing is gross, but also not flossing is gross.
0: Like yeah, flossing I would rather is like deal with the act. Yeah, because you're all right.
1: Like... I I would rather deal with the act too. Like I think you want to floss, but I'm just saying like flossing's kind of gross in and of itself too. Like I don't
0: know. It gives me the the
1: I I don't know creep the sometimes.
0: Yeah, I'm still looking forward to talking to a holistic dentist on this damn podcast because I very much want to talk about the oral microbiome and like the inflammation, like oral inflammation leading to body-wide inflammation. Like I want to talk about all of that. And I am going to have to start like a vision board to bringing that into our reality because I've tried to reach out to the Ask a Dentist guy on Instagram once or twice and he hasn't gotten back to me. And I'm, I'm like... I don't know any other functional dentists who seem like they're worth interviewing. But if anybody knows, message me on Instagram at Triangle Guts, and I would be happy to entertain others. That's just the one dude that I've been following for a while. But I really want to talk about the oral microbiome. I think that that would be a great topic. And we could talk about H. pylori, among other critters. And speaking of other critters, there is one more that I wanted to highlight. Candida.
1: Hmm.
0: Now, Candida is a common boogeyman. And it's not that everybody has it. But there is some weird, weird research that suggests that candida and H. pylori can be buddy-buddy with each other, and they can help each other out, and that H. pylori can live inside, like, the cellular structure of the candida and be sheltered from antimicrobials. So if you have a genuinely tricky case of H. pylori, like, you've, you've tried all the things, it's still there, the tests are showing it's positive. So again, you're not chasing an imaginary boogeyman. You know that this is something that you have, and you really, really have a gut feeling that you need to work on it. You might want to throw in a little bit of anti-candida support, throw in a little bit of caprylic acid or SF-722 or something like that, and just see if that shifts things. Because I have seen some research indicating that H. pylori and candida can be best friends forever.
1: Yeah, and it's I've not seen... in a way
0: that's favorable to you.
1: I've seen some of that stuff too. I'm glad you brought that up. I, I would have forgot forgotten that point.
0: Can I ask you though? Did do you remember where you first came across that? Because I remember who it I was. Do. Yeah, the Gut Institute. Was it? Yes, Grace Liu. Yeah, yep. she she's a great example. Like I I appreciate some of her stuff, but she's a great example of somebody who like from what I've seen of her, and I haven't tuned in in a couple of years now. But at the time, when I think she was really like building her following, I got the impression that in her mind, everybody has candida. Everybody has the yeasties. And that was like the pretty classic boogeyman in a lot of her work. And she was really, really big on the organic acids test, which now, like now my opinion as of 2022 is that I think the oat test probably over diagnoses or over exaggerates yeast and candida Yeah. Um but yeah, I just I remember a lot of a lot of like her Facebook lives focusing on the organic acids test and look how right. yeasty this person is and and like everything she could tie back to yeast in some way. And it's not to say that yeast is is a good thing that you want a whole lot of, but um I, I do take everything she says with a big grain of salt now, just with that knowledge.
1: Hmm. Yeah Again, I also think it's weird because I, I do feel like so, certain practitioners sort of like depending on how they're I don't want to say advertising per se, but whatever contact content they're generating could also lead to different populations coming to them. So like I don't know again like yeah. what what her content was or like how you know, I know she did some stuff about like with fatigue and things like that, or like there could have been a, a, a more of a draw,
0: selection to, bias,
1: right. More of a draw yeah. towards, um, or people kind of choosing her that are, are a little bit more of the candida presentation too. But yeah, I, I, yeah, I haven't, I haven't really, st- I feel like she hasn't been as active lately either, but maybe I could be wrong.
0: Yeah. I, I think I unfollowed her page a couple years ago. Cause I was like, Like, after you follow somebody for a while, you're like, all right, I got your shtick. It's cool. Like, I hadn't taken seminars with Datis Karazian in years because it was always, you know, it was great, but also there was, like, these very distinct pillars that were in all of his stuff he's ever, and it's still true. Gluten, bad. Dairy, also mostly bad. (laughs) Right. The vast majority of the time. Um, Glutathione is super important. Nitric oxide is important leaky gut is important and then there's like a smattering of everything else but it's like he hits on the same couple like gluten is evil glutathione for everybody every time it's like all right detise i got it so for a while i kind of got bored with detise because i felt like he was a broken record and i just felt like the same thing with and there's probably people who are in episode whatever we are 80 or something of this podcast and they're like all right you guys with with Building resiliency and the nutrition and all that crap. We get it. So maybe people are bored of me too. But um, yeah, she was one where I was just like, yeah, like, I just, I feel like less than 100% of the population struggles with yeast. And therefore I'm going to kind of like take a step back from listening to you for the time being. But she had some pretty good stuff.
1: Yeah. Again, there were definitely some things that I, that I liked of hers too. Again, I haven't, I haven't seen her much as of late though. Um maybe she's just not in my algorithm anymore for some reason. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And And now it's just that. dog
1: videos essentially. <laughs> I feel like my algorithm like on that TikTok. sounds like is, a favorable
0: shift. Yeah. My
1: algorithm on TikTok is just dog video after dog video after dog video, which is glorious. Okay. Can I
0: can I allow you to laugh at my expense for a moment?
1: Yeah, yes. Because
0: I think I'm officially out of H. Pylori wisdom to share. But I do have something that I want to share, and it's, it's embarrassing, but it is what it is. So I've decided recently that I'm going to do the opposite of what other people do. Other people post on TikTok and then download the TikToks and upload them into Instagram Reels. I'm going to make my Reels, which should be coming out again soon. Um, I'm going to be making my Reels, downloading them, and then uploading them into TikTok and I don't know anything about TikTok at all. Um, I think I made a profile and then I posted like one and then that was it. Um, but I just, decided, I was like, well, I've got to like get a sense for it a little bit. And I'm going to read a little bit and find some YouTube videos, t- tutorials. So I literally typed into google.com TikTok. But I realized after the fact that I spelled it incorrectly. I spelled it like an old person, Amy. I'm only 35. Oh, like TikTok, I'm not that mints? old.
1: Did well, you like TikTok,
0: cold. like on a clock, I spelled it T I C K, <laughs> new word, T O C K. And oh then, gosh. you know, Google did the condescending thing where it was like, did you mean TikTok? And it <laughs> oh was, gosh. it was, you know, what is it? T I K T O K, all one yeah. word. And I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> I I feel less relevant in the world. Oh my god! Oh God. So yeah, I, so that's my little, I'm apparently getting old story.
1: For some reason, I thought that you, you had written Tic Tac, like a Tic Tac Mint or oh, something. Oh, no, no. Were, that would also be an old thing
0: to do, I feel like. I, in, in my defense, I still think I spelled it correctly. And the people who came up with the name of the app didn't know how to spell TikTok, But yeah, I not only did I type that into Google.com, which is already kind of an old person behavior, right. but also I spelled it correctly, which is incorrect, which amused me. Oh my gosh. Highly. Yep. So just prepare for the old lady of TikTok to be there. But I decided I've got all of these fun Instagram reels. I might as well pop them over there onto that platform. Um, yeah. But, but one of my next projects in the moving saga, I have my husband's level. And I'm going to hang some pretty stuff on that wall. So when we meet to record next week, I should have some pretty stuff on my wall. So stay Excellent. tuned. I meant to do so that for today's podcast, and then I just didn't get a chance, actually.
1: Yeah. While well, you were traveling,
0: you needed your rest. Yeah. Yes. But I also want to take a quick moment and say, once again, people, if you're not watching this on YouTube, you are missing out. Because Amy is wearing a very... Very fine baseball cap with a little Boston Terrier peeking out over the rim, and That's it makes true. me think of little Chipperino.
1: Yeah, Chip. He's he's been very lazy the last couple of days just because it's been rainy. He's been laying in his bed, and I'll go and pet him, and he's very well. Sweet. He's
0: probably helping you grow that child in some way. Like he's he's sending you womb juju or something, and he's Maybe. tired because he's helping to grow a person. So, yeah. it, this is his pregnancy, too.
1: Right. Uh, you might be right.
0: Yeah.
1: That's probably what it is. You're right. That's how the physiology works out, right? Yes.
0: Uh, all right. Well, until next time, my darling. Like I said, I think I'm officially out of H. pylori wisdom. If you had any more wisdom, you could have piped up amongst nope. the last couple of stories. So, I think you're out of wisdom, too. But, uh, yep. guys, as always, it was super rad. And I will see you, and Amy will see you on the next episode of the IBS Freedom Podcast. Be sure to holler at us on Instagram. She is at Amy
1: underscore camp.
0: Camp underscore RD. Sorry, my brain yep. had a meltdown. And I'm at Triangle Guts because I'm in the Triangle of North Carolina. And we will see you on the Instagram and on the podcasts. Until then, too.